If you're running around pretending your head's on fire, there's no way you can manage or do anything. You've got to stand still, you've got to centre yourself, and you've got to think about what you're going to do. That, to me, is plays to resilience. We want to create moments that inspire the nation, which is ultimately the end goal, but the purpose for the programme is how do we take a young person and go beyond their dreams, go beyond their expectations. Hello and welcome to the Track Record Podcast. Each and every episode, we are asking leading performers in sport and business, what does it take to win? And today we've got two leaders with incredible track records. Catherine. We've made our life complicated today by having two people with the same name, but very different backgrounds. Welcome to Chris Pitt, who's a career marketeer specialising in financial services. Chris is driven by an interest in understanding what matters to people and communicating brands and propositions that deliver to their needs. He's previously been the CMO for HSBC and marketing director for Tesco Bank, and he's now the CEO of First Direct. And on a mission with his colleagues, he wants to challenge the norms and behaviours of the banking industry to deliver what really matters for people. The other Chris that we have today is Chris Spice, who is the National Performance Director of British Swimming. Chris had a very successful hockey career as a player and Olympic gold medal winning coach in Australia before becoming a performance director in not only hockey and rugby union, but also basketball and now swimming. So really covering the board of sport here. Chris has led Great Britain to its best ever performance at an Olympics for the over 100 years. And during his tenure so far, over 85 international medals have been won by British swimmers. Wow, excellent. In at the deep end, hopefully that's not too much of a pun to start with, but uh, Chris Spice, I'd love to hear from you. What's been the most profound experience that you've had that shaped you to be the leader that you are today? Probably walking into an Olympic final in 1996 as a coach, thinking that you have all the answers and then quickly realising that you don't. Mm. Um, And we very much were building the Australian women's hockey team at the time, staying focused on the process and not getting overawed by the outcome or where we were in a particular match. We went in at halftime at 1-1. They had had one shot right just before halftime and straight through the goalkeeper's legs. And we'd actually been dominating for the whole half. As much as we wanted to go in and be very clear with what we wanted from them, our psychologist got hold of both coaches as we walked in to the change rooms and said, you need to let them talk first. And you can imagine the coach of an Olympic final being asked not to speak and to (laughs) ask the athletes a question. And that for me was the defining moment of not just my coaching career, but my leadership journey around how do we empower people and how do we get them to the point where they're ready to be empowered and capable of that And then how do we have the courage to stand back and let it happen? And for me, that was a a career-defining moment in the fact that we went in and we did ask them and we reshaped one or two things that they said. But in the main, what that did was built their own ownership of their journey for that second half. And we were absolutely dominant in the second half and ran away with the game. And Chris Pitt, I'd be fascinated to find out from you the answer to the same question. What's those kind of profound moments that have shaped you? From my perspective, one is a motivation. My dad once had to borrow the money off my granddad to pay the gas bill. And knowing that he needed to borrow money to be able to cook his food and and warm his house was something that's always given me a sense of gravity relative to why you do things for your family and also not wanting to be in that very painful predicament and also being very empathetic to him. I think in business, slightly less prosaic, really. I've worked with McKinsey and McKinsey are a very powerful group of people, a culture of up or out, 
drives that. Them coming into my business where being my first meeting with them and realizing that they were going to run straight over me if I didn't up my game and upping my game and knowing that I actually could run with them gave me not only a sense of momentum in my career relative to my ability, but also focusing on what matters, on getting things done and making things happen rather than just talking. And then finally is being made redundant in my mid-40s and I can still draw up that kind of visceral angst of thinking about how am I going to feed my family, how am I going to pay for my accommodation, how am I going to be a good husband and parent and getting after that and making that change to be able to deliver on that. They're the kind of the three points that I would talk to in my life. Certainly the last two as they're directly impacting what you feel is within your control potentially are both what we could call threat state triggers. You can go from being in a pretty good place to actually being in not such a good place and really feeling like it's on you. And it sounds like that was then a platform for you to do something different or for you to see that as an opportunity to develop yourself rather than this is a threat to me and therefore I'm going to withdraw or freeze or whatever the response might be in that situation. Was that something that was conscious at the time or did you tap into something that you'd already developed? In sport, in the living of our lives, you don't tend to create that black and whiteness. When I got made redundant, you go through the normal human challenges like angst, feeling sorry for yourself, but then realising that this is on me and only I can sort this out, only I can make a difference. I was in Edinburgh at the time and I ended up with something like 26 jobs on the go. I treated it like a piece of work and turned it into a programme of work. Some of them were kind of initial conversations, some of them were like full applications. And for two and a half years, I commuted from Edinburgh to London because I needed to make sure that my family were looked after, especially my children. My youngest son was still in school in Edinburgh. It made, coming back to the point around sport, it made the decision very black and white, which you don't tend to get shades of grey in business because there was no way, there was a red line for me, that I was ever going to take my son out of school and impact his future and impact his future happiness and career and life. And I was going to do everything within my power to make sure that happened. Chris Spice, I know that that's a topic that is very dear to you in terms of developing a sense of resilience in athletes and creating a self-sufficiency. And your story really spoke to that in terms of how do you, I remember you using a phrase of, at what point do you hand the performance over to the athlete, which I really love as a kind of question to ask. What are your reflections having trained resilience? The pandemic has challenged us all in different ways. The two-year lead-in to Tokyo became very uncertain. We know how some people don't behave well in times of uncertainty, and particularly those people that like to be planned and like everything to be perfect. In a normal Olympic preparation, you can control a lot of things. But in this preparation, we were actually out of control for most of it. Because each week something would come and change or the rules would change or the country we were travelling to would change and then someone would go down with COVID and then the team would change and then the staff would change. And this was happening as we were trying to prepare the team for the Olympics. And then we got into Yokohama in our holding camp and then it changed again. We had to try and reflect that in our preparation How did we then challenge the athletes on a day-to-day basis and the staff on a day-to-day basis in building that resilience? 
we came up with this saying that uncertainty is normal and how do we get to the point where all of this that's happening around us is just normal? The question we, we constantly threw to everyone, how can we be better at this, better at reacting, better at doing this than anyone else? Turn it almost the uncertainty into a performance question about it's our job not just to be the best in the pool, but how do we be the best out of it in our preparation and training? And at various times through the year, we would put things in there that were deliberate to challenge them in different ways. We'd allow them to have no warm up in a meet. We'd allow them to have to bunk into a gym session before they competed. A whole batch of extended training practices so that by the time they got to the Olympics itself, hopefully in good shape physically and also mentally, then it's almost the performance itself was easy. And how do we get there so that they're so relaxed about that, that the performance is seen, wow, this isn't as difficult at all, despite all the tension and all the rest of it. The big change in the Olympics in Tokyo for us was that there were no crowds. If you're a young athlete in your first Olympics and you walk out in your first heat, the noise can be deafening. And of course, what we had was no noise. So how do we prepare for no noise? We actually put meets on in the UK beforehand to prepare for the silence. For the younger athletes, it was great. For Adam Peaty, he hated it because he gets off on the noise of the crowd. And our number one athlete, that was a concern for us. So we brought speakers into training. We ramped up noise when he was there. We slowly got him used to having no noise, um, almost weaned him off it, if you like. That whole resilience that the staff and the athletes showed through that period was pretty amazing. It is a hard thing to build because you try and build it each day. How do we make sure, number one, we don't overreact to things? That's one of the biggest issues that we came out of the pandemic. What is really urgent? What is really important? And do we really need to make this decision now? Because what we found in the pandemic was we had to be careful not to make decisions too quickly because things would change the next week. That in itself was almost building some resilience. What did the coaches have to let go of in terms of their role and traditionally how it had been done to almost allow the athletes to develop that skill set? They had to let go of control. A lot of swimming coaches get the stopwatch out and they yell out times and people go up and down and they yell out if they're faster or not. And if someone had just come back from COVID, they had to be nursed back. There was a very structured program of return to training after anyone got infected with COVID. And they couldn't control any of that. It was outside of what they would normally try and do. We did a lot of work with them around Mm -hmm. the courage to hand things over to other people in times of stress. To be fair, we had some really bright young coaches that latched on to the whole idea and the journey around that. The medical team or the sports science team was making decisions that they would normally make. And that was a struggle, particularly for a couple of them. And that was my job to work with the head coach and the coaches about reassuring them it's going to be okay, repointing them to the longer journey that often what's in front of their face, whilst they think is really important in the long term, isn't. And we will get over it and we will get better and we will improve. And as a team, we'll get better if we're all on the same journey. That was the biggest point for me was this lack of control that that the coaches particularly had to hand over some of their responsibilities to other people. Chris Pitt, what role does resilience play within your organization? How do you either screen for it or discover it, train it? What role does it play within your business? It's a huge part of our business on a functional level. If you think about what matters in financial services, in banking, if you treated it as 100, 90 of it is it just works. You think about you put some fuel in your car and go to pay and your debit card doesn't work. You're just letting everybody down. It doesn't matter whether you've got great customer service. It doesn't matter whether you've got a bristle or a bell or we give you a free banana every time you use your account or whatever it may be. It's just got to work. I think the best analogy to that is the drains. You don't come to work every day or go somewhere and say, oh, the drains are working today. You can't smell anything. 
you only notice it when they don't. So 90% of us is just working. And then you've got things above, which are kind of loyalty, a good pricing, customers. So I'm not saying they're not important, but if you can't do the basics. And trust is a fundamental part of that. And that is now true with the, the pandemic around fraud that is happening across the globe, especially digitally based fraud. Again, it's, it's about trust. So resilience is at the heart of that. My job, as well as being progressive in a business, growing it, being helpful and useful to the people who work here and, and the communities that we serve, all those things are, you know, are very passionate and important to us. If you can't actually operate the account, keep people's money safe and allow them to do what they want to do, everything else is stuff and nonsense. And picking up on the thoughts of resilience, I've just had a leadership team meeting this morning and I was coming in this morning listening to the Today programme and I must admit, it could make you feel as though the end of time is coming, listening to that. The environment, and I've got, I've got a bit of paper in front of it, inflation, cost of living crisis, climate crisis with the heat that we've had, strikes, nurses, rail people, post office workers, and then we've got our own. And what I said to them in the end is, is that the fundamentals of our organisation, we are a brilliant bank. We're the number one customer service in the UK. We're trading brilliantly relative to historical context. Our strategy is solid and everybody's engaged to it. But most importantly, we as a management team really need to stand up and be leaders now because we could be consumed by this environment or we could look at the strengths that we've got and the strengths that we have as people and we could stand up and deliver and deliver the things that are important within the context of the strategy. But I'm blessed with some brilliant people who have great experience but it's easily to be discombobulated that, to be lack resilience relative to that environment. And I think latching on to things which are beyond you to do that, caring about our people, caring about our customers, being progressive. We want to be doing more work for people who don't have their own home, people who are victims of domestic abuse. It drives that resilience. So that to me is a conversation we've had today. If you're running around pretending your head's on fire, there's no way you can manage or do anything. You've got to stand still. You've got to center yourself. And you've got to think about what you're going to do. That to me is place to resilience. It sounds the examples you gave as to what to look to in those moments is how we would define purpose. What's your why? And how do you hold on to that? Even if the world around you is changing at a rapid pace and how do you use that as a bit of a, a North star to keep the organization feeling very clear as to the purpose and, and the meaningful work element, if it all feels like it's getting a bit out of control. How much do you deliberately use that, Chris, in terms of the business? It's the reason why I love what I do, because as a marketeer, you talk about purpose to create that construct and energy and focus for a business. But often businesses get lost and business people who come from different disciplines get lost in the kind of let's make money, let's deliver great customer service. The reason I love my job is, is my ability to put that at the center. We are a brilliant bank for customer service. But it's an expectation. Purpose is what makes you different, interesting, focused, important to people. And I was actually talking to one of the guys who reports to me today, and, and our purpose is to challenge the unfairness for young people and to give them hope. We know young people are absolutely challenged by the world that exists today, post the pandemic, the impact on unemployment, the ability to get a home, which is so vital, not only just to from a financial perspective, but also actually for people to have a place of their own where they can be and love and learn and relax. We're putting that at the center of what we do. What it does is it drives, it's driving our behavior. 
We're looking to change our proposition so it can support people who are challenged by the cost of living crisis. We're looking to produce a proposition where we can give money to shelter who actually gives to people who haven't got their own home. We're looking to produce a product which allows you to have less fees when you go abroad because young people want to travel. When you have that purpose, it creates that centre of gravity and it's starting to really work now to operate throughout the organisation. It needs to be flexible enough that people can have ownership and autonomy of the delivery, but it needs to have that guiding light and it's starting to do that. One thing that we are looking to do, which we haven't got after yet, is have an account for victims of domestic abuse. As I was saying to one of my guys today, and it's not on a personal level, but on a statistical level, if we could do that, we could potentially save some people's lives who can move out of the home of an abuser to have a bank account. Now, banking doesn't usually have that kind of link to rational to emotive, but there's a truth to that. And I'm not trying to big up something we're doing. It's other, other banks do it as well. But it becomes so important to people's lives. And I think if you have a meeting where you say, we potentially could help some people live beyond the next 24 hours you would get to that meeting you would make sure there was an output you wouldn't prevaricate and that to me is purpose at its guttural level if you like chris spice does this purpose play a part within the british swimming team oh yeah it's massive you know we want to create moments that inspire the nation which is ultimately the end goal but the purpose for the program is how do we take a young person and go beyond their dreams, go beyond their expectations. Because it's one thing to say that you can be the best you can be. Certainly a lot of programs take that as a goal, but our goal is very much to take people beyond that. Because sometimes young athletes don't know how good they could be. They think that they've got ceiling or limits. So what does no limits mean? And how do we take them on the journey that is beyond where they thought they could go? In doing so, we create those inspirational moments to inspire the nation. You know, come back to the Tokyo Olympics, the amount of emotion at that Olympics was far, far greater without any parents, without any family in the stands, without anyone else, because of the journey that it took to get there. When Tom Dean won his gold medal, James Guy, his training partner, was in tears in the stand because he knew exactly the journey that he'd been on to get to that point. And that, to me, was one of the most inspiring moments of the Olympics. It wasn't Tom winning, but it was James's reaction to Tom winning because he'd been with him every single stroke of that journey over the last couple of years, getting COVID twice, helping him back. In the, what I'm learning now about the power team, there's so many inspirational people in there. We've just got to work out how to dial that back and ensure that they get the recognition and support that they deserve as well, because it's quite a different thing to the Olympic Games, but it's incredibly inspirational. I'm hoping that we'll be able to use some of the para athletes to inspire some of the able-bodied athletes just with their stories journey it's taken to get there for some of them getting in and out of the pool is amazingly difficult and if some of our able body athletes sometimes think oh poor me today poor me today if we can take them along to a para session and say well this young female athlete's got to do to get to training in and out and get back just so they can see that the effort and inspiration is also in other programs and it's something that we can dial in and hopefully reconnect with their purpose What would you see as being the performance advantage if you really start to tap into what that purpose can be and ultimately that inspiration that you talk about? Too often in a sport like swimming, which is very defined by outcome, you either win or you lose, our purpose is pretty clear, go out and win some medals. 
but that's not what we connect to. It's kind of like any other outcome goal. We, it's there and it's visible and we've got our outcome goals with our funding agencies, but we put it to one side and we dial back. It's the how do we actually attain that? We attain that a lot by getting people on the bus that want to come on this journey with us. That's about making you better than you ever thought you could be, not just the best you can be. If we can get people that are either staff, particularly athletes, that want to sign up for that because it isn't easy. We might think, well, getting a like Adam Peaty, how do we reset him? all the time we give him different goals around not just time but around how he's going to impact on society and he's now moving away from just what's happening in the pool that's giving him another purpose which connects to our journey it's very much a valuable one and really assists in motivation one of the struggles we've got with full-time athletes now is sometimes they just are an athlete and, and don't have any connections outside we're really trying to work hard with our performance lifestyle people to ensure that they are having some touch with the real world out there because it can become all-encompassing if you're just constantly focused on performance. How do we then stretch them out emotionally and not just physically, but give them something else that they can hang their hat on that they're proud about that isn't just about what happened in the pool? Because often that's been driven by not just them, but for years by mum and dad and by brothers and sisters and everyone else that's been attached to that journey. That's the next phase for us in terms of how do we give them purpose beyond the pool and so that it can connect them back and then ultimately affect and increase their performance in the pool. If I was to turn that question on you in terms of you've done this for a long time, how have you reset your purpose or reset yourself through different cycles to find it interesting and inspiring for yourself? And what would define this next one? for you in terms of success or some sense of achievement that is different maybe to how you've felt that in the past? I remember reading Alex Ferguson's book around change and one of his comments was, I'm frightened if I don't change because things will come up and go past me and then suddenly we won't be on top anymore. For me, things need to change and keep evolving to keep me motivated personally and in different ways and that you can either do that by changing the people that you work with or the athletes or you can change yourself into a different operation. And in my head, I've always spent about seven years at a sport and then thought, well, I've probably taken them as far as I can. And now it's time for something else. But what's happened in the aquatics world is we've now merged all the programs into one. So instead of just overseeing the swimming program, now I've got a whole bunch of new people that I don't know that I'm working out what makes them tick and bringing them together. In a strange kind of way, I need that change environment to keep going because the minute in elite sport you stand still is the minute you'll be overtaken. And that constant journey and the constant continual improvement philosophy that we try and drill into everybody, staff and athletes, it's a bit boring sometimes because you never quite get to the end. You know, we're still improving, but we never get there. But of course, we have to celebrate our wins along the way. And that's something that's really important. But then we need to get back on the bus pretty quickly because the next thing's around the corner and the next thing. For me personally, it's those challenges that keep me motivated. And some of those I make deliberately, some of them are made for me. But the minute that I think that either I can't add value to what's happening on the ground or people are getting a bit bored with me, then that's the time when it's time for me to move on. And same question to you, Chris. How do you keep it interesting and get the buzz still? When I engage with younger people within my business on a mentoring basis, I take them back to books that we've encountered as part of developing our purpose. One which is called The Squiggly Lives, which is understanding what your core motivations are to then understand what you want to do, especially if you're in the kind of the world of business, because it can be very confusing for people setting out. And the reason I mention that is because I've read that recently. It's one of those books I wish I'd read when I was 22, because... I kind of got there, but 
got there through learning what I didn't like or what I couldn't do, rather than resetting myself around my motivations. And I'm absolutely motivated by intellectual stimulation. We all need money. We all need to have status to a degree. But for me, it's about intellectual stimulation. And I just get so bored so easily. But it, I know that that's in me. I, don't, I can't take it out. You know, when people describe the perfect holiday and it's kind of lying on a beach and lying by a pool, I can't do that for a nanosecond. I just can't do it. In the same way that I'm in constant motion in my career, it's not because I'm super brilliant. It's not because I want to rule the world. It's because if I don't go and tackle something new or something important, I'll just go to sleep. I just can't do that. And what's the consequences of that for those around you? I'd like to think that my other potential partial superpower is empathy as a marketeer and understanding the perspectives of others. I tried to be the person that I'd like to work for. I mean, having experienced a load of very poor management over the years, so I, I don't interfere. I like to think that I set a goal, give people a good environment, give them clarity of responsibility, and then let them get on with it. What defines a good environment for you as a leader? What's the environment you're creating? The right environment is the environment that allows that person to thrive and to create the best version of themselves, is to fulfill the, the potential that they've got. Again, as a marketeer, that is different for everybody. To me, that creates a framework which has flexibility, but also a construct. I'm a massive introvert, and I'm also someone who's a real a reflector. I have people in my team who love to be stroked who love someone telling them that they're doing brilliantly, who really want a kind of a chat of the morning and, and that kind of constant, that kind of human engagement. That's the complete antithesis of me. But yeah. I know as a leader, I need to be that person for them. So I think it's making sure that you have a flexibility of management style that allows those people to achieve that. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure that you create an environment where people can be the best version of themselves, regardless of who and how they are, and they know that they will be accepted on that basis. They don't need to fit a certain category. And I'm thinking beyond gender or race or sexual orientation. It's about how and who you are. And how much of your view on that has been shaped by you being an introvert? And I remember you saying, I'm an introvert who presents like an extrovert. And that sense of having to potentially feeling like you have to do that in certain situations or the environment in the past has made you feel pressure maybe to, to do that? How much has that experience shaped your environment that you like to create now? I think massively, personally, because I still am that person in the room sometimes who wants to say something, but because of who and how I am and the other people around me don't. So I'm highly sensitized to that relative to drawing in everybody and, and making sure everybody feels that and allows everybody to contribute. It creates the right side of empathy. Don't get me wrong, this is not a introvert's good or bad thing. It's just, it's much more easily observed from the quiet end of the scale than it is from the noisy end of the scale. Chris, I'm probably at the other end of your scale. I'm being a bit noisy. I'm a bit on the noisy end. I love people like you, Chris, because I can just sit there and watch you. 
I do have to take myself away to reflect, though, because I think, oh, shut up for a minute. People, you actually just need to watch and listen. Can I just pick up on a couple of that stuff that Chris was saying there? Because around environment particularly, I think for me, the environment is spot on. It's exactly the same in sporting world. It's absolutely key to everything we do. And certainly my background in behavioural psychology, it's around nipping those little behaviours in the bud when you see that they're not quite right and they're not quite exactly where you want to go and jumping on the little things so that they don't become big things. As a coach, you, you come very in tuned with people and their behaviours. And as you said, Chris, what they may need or may not need from me as a leader. I say to my leadership team all the time that we're all custodians of our culture. So it isn't up to me to get out and wave the big stick around, but it's up to you and everyone else that's around. If you see something that's not right, then call it out, say it, and, and we move on. And we say that to the athletes. It's much more powerful in our team now that we've got such a strong leadership team in our amongst our athletes, that we barely have to say things anymore. I mean, one of our big things is, is whenever we go anywhere to make sure that no one thinks we've been there. We leave no rubbish. We pick up everything. We make sure that we're invisible the time that we leave. We started that several years ago, and now we barely have to mention it at all as a group of staff because it's so ingrained in the culture of our team that we don't want to be that team that leaves rubbish behind. We don't want to be that team now that uses lots of plastic bottles. And to your point, Chris, about empowering people, absolutely, I totally am that kind of leader. But I have come unstuck a couple of times when I've empowered and I've not been ready. And so some of the decision making hasn't been spot on. And I'm sure we've all done it. But the key is how do we get those people capable and ready to be enabled? I've seen that in certainly in the team sport environment, much more so than the individual in sport environment, getting those people in the right place. And then once you've done that, set some objectives and goals, and we'll come back and revisit these every three months. It's over to you guys, because I don't know the detail. I don't want to know the detail, but I just need to know that we're on track. And when we, we evaluate the process, that it's all heading in the right direction. And so a lot of those, whether it's staff appraisals and team meetings and bits we do with our leadership team, and now all conversations rather than necessarily stuff coming from me at the top, because I don't have all the answers. And I certainly say that to them regularly. Well, yes, thanks for coming and asking me, but I don't have the answer, but I can find out from someone who, who might. And I think even showing that kind of level of vulnerability now is just, is just become normal practice in our whole department and a whole team. You can imagine in Olympic coaches trying to get them to that point when they've got incredible egos it was often all about them and not actually about the athletes. Um, but to actually get them to that point and to admit the fact that maybe they don't know the answers and maybe talking to someone else is a good idea. And maybe they just might need to come to this and learn something. Because I struggled in the first few years to get the swimming coaches off the pool deck because they didn't need to come because they knew it all. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I asked when I arrived after our one silver and two bronze medal performance in London. The coaches told me we had some really good coaches. And so I went and met all these really good coaches and they told me that they were really good. But then I had to rephrase that and say, well, I'm very pleased that you're really good, but I'm actually after great. And what does great look like? It doesn't look like what you're doing right now. And if you were great, then perhaps our medal production might be a bit better and perhaps our athletes might be managed in a different way and perhaps they'd be a bit better. So dialing back on all those conversations, the early days, and that's part of the things when you talked about inspiring um, me personally is having those conversations, those really tough, challenging conversations when I moved to a new organisation are the things that really get me motivated because very little of it is new. As we move around things, it's almost how do you say the same thing over and over again but make it sound different? You know, because it is the number of times I walked into basketball, oh, you don't really know basketball and you don't really know swimming, but oh, it's different here in hockey. It's different here in swimming. And it's exactly the same. Fundamentally, it's the same. Now, technically, it's clearly a lot different. And I 
try and up speed myself when I go into a new job on the technical side of each sport as quickly as possible. But in terms of the how, the fundamental question for me as a coach, how do I get the best out of my people when it matters most? That was the question to myself. And right through my coaching career and then into management now, it's how do I get the world's best head coach? I want the world's best sports science and sports medicine lead. I want the world's best doctor. I want all these people to be the best they can be. So what am I doing to help and enable them to do that? And what am I asking? What am I challenging them about? What am I congratulating them on? Because often when I first started at swimming, we'd get very excited and send people off to the finals because they made a final. You know, everyone was really excited. Well, I'm not that interested in how many finals we make, quite frankly. I'm interested in how well we perform once we get in the final. Some of that dialogue changed and is now changing. And now the great pleasing thing that you see as a leader is some of the athletes now are regurgitating and living some of that stuff. And after our Olympic performance, James Guy was quoted back saying, oh, my first team, we used to celebrate people going into a final. It's so ridiculous. We've got so many finalists now. We'd be there all night. And so everything has changed based on, you know, we've raised the bar slightly and then a bit more, then a bit more, then a bit more. And the challenge now is after our best performance in history, where do we go now? Well, our new strap line for this next period is the best is yet to come. Both of you talk incredibly eloquently and passionately about your responsibility as leaders on the environment that you create. We see this time and time again, when the leader is in a good place, the team tends to be in a calm, safe place. But when that leader goes from what we describe as from challenge state to threat state, that kind of stress and pressure ricochets down through the organization at such a rate. And I'd be fascinated to hear from both of you, what kind of things send you into that threat state that that you have a hard time not ricocheting through your leadership team into the wider organization? What kind of things keep you up at night? Chris Pitt, I'd love to hear from you. I think it operates on two levels for me. One is the business level and one's the personal level. The business level is uh, relative to a bank functioning. It's the, you can't deliver your core service. You can't answer the phones, the transactions aren't working, your, your card is unsafe to use. So if you lose that, you've lost everything really. And then on a personal basis, it would be you're asleep at the wheel. You aren't diligent enough, you haven't thought this through enough, you aren't on your brief. I would hate to be accused of being vacuous, not hardworking. That to me is a personal challenge to my brand as a human being, really. If you came at me, that that would spark me up. There's an element of very, very big issue, very easily managed, because everybody will galvanise around it and we'll sort it out. The second one is, is a kind of constant, especially in a job like mine, whereby I'll be told off by one of my call centre agents if the toilet doesn't work. At the same time as we need to have a great DNI strategy, at the same time we need to reward our customers, in the same time our call centre stats need to be great, in the same time as we need to be making money. This job is the sort of job which anything can come from anywhere at any time, and therefore staying on top of that is a mite difficult. What are your strategies for that? As a human, what are the things you do to not let that feel overwhelming? Well, a kind of a base level is absolutely work hard. I came back from holiday on this on Monday morning and I think I have three emails in my inbox. So I worked every single one and know exactly what's going on. Making sure you then touch base with all the people who are going to tell you things you might not want to hear, be that in terms of how the business operates. 
the one thing that I've learned in business is don't surround yourself with sycophants. Go and talk to the people who don't like you, who would be the most critical of you. There's a guy who used to be the CEO here who said, ask yourself the question that you don't want to be asked. Calling that out and then going talking to the people who you think are the ones who are the most conflictory to you and finding out what is underneath that conflict and taking it on. And Chris Spice, what are your triggers? What are the things that push you into threat state? The things from in the sporting context is often injury and illness. They're the things that you kind of worry about or people recovering from injury and illness fast enough or slow enough. The whole drug taking thing, as much as you do all the educations, performance enhancing drugs are out there and we, we try and think we do the right thing. Touch wood, so far, so good. And on top of that, I think the whole question around athlete welfare is growing and concerning because some of the issues now we're having is how we're coaching is brought under the microscope. We've seen the right review with gymnastics and everything else. My concern at the minute is that our coaches will actually stop coaching because they'll just want people to feel well and not um, make a complaint and not want to be pushed hard like they were in the past. For me, they're the things that I worry about at the minute. And just to Chris's point on a personal level, when my own personal values are attacked, I guess that's where I res- not respond favorably in lots of ways. And and we had an athlete who we knew leading into Tokyo was probably not going to make the team. And she probably knew that too. And then really basically just tried to extort some money out of us and made up allegations that were not true around bullying and all the rest of it for the sake of trying to get some money out of the program. And I didn't respond well to that. Yeah. Um, and thank goodness we had an incredibly diligent set of notes around that knowing what um, the dad was like and this was going to happen at some time and so our record keeping was first class and we managed to not get that to court and they were trying to get us to push us into a corner to go public before the olympics to basically dismantle the team so for the three or four months into tokyo that was all laying on the back of my head and the head coach's head and in the end, we called their bluff and it went away. But when your values are attacked and you know that, that, that it's false and that you know that at any point that could end up in the public domain and in the current environment, it doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be out there. And that was the worrying thing for us because, quite frankly, both myself and the head coach may not have got on the plane as a result of it. So the management of that with our legal team was really difficult. But in the end, it went away and we were able to focus the last few weeks in in the right direction. But that was probably one of the most difficult things in my career so far. It's fascinating how over and over again, we see people managing incredible levels of stress and pressure in their roles, but often it's an identity thing that's the biggest trigger. Often it's really you as a human and people questioning what you stand for that really creates the biggest response. So it's really interesting that both of you have that as your biggest trigger. It's certainly something we see. And on that theme, when we think about values, we talk about this idea of an aspirational value as well as the core values, which you guys have described as the things that might have been triggered. And really with that, it's thinking about if you were to be described by somebody in a couple of years time and they were to use three words and one of those words you hear and you're like, wow, I don't think in 2022 they'd have used that word about me. And actually that makes me feel really proud. What might that word be for each of you? What might be the stretch within your identity that would make you feel proud? Chris Pitt, I'm going to go to you first. This business was set up in 1989 
when the idea is basically everybody banked in a branch. You used to go into a branch and hand over slips of paper and all that sort of stuff. It was a revolutionary organisation. Over the years, the very nature of a maturing organisation has been less revolutionary. It still has delivered some things brilliantly, but it's lost that freshness of challenge, if you like. And in some ways, it's evolved quite naturally, but that created a legacy which is a massive thing positive, but also a massive dead weight. We can't let that legacy become a burden. We don't want to ignore it. And we're creating our own legacy. So we're growing really strongly. Today, I say we are creating a legacy. What I want to do when I walk away from this job is to leave it better than when I started and to leave a legacy. That's what I want to do. The word that I've written down here, which I wouldn't normally associate with me, especially as an introvert, is to inspire people to deliver that legacy. What would I see in your behaviour? in two years that I wouldn't see now that would indicate you're really living that? Don't talk yourself down and don't be too humble. But I think I'd probably need to be more bullish and more bombastic for my business rather than for me. I struggle with PRing myself because I can't for one moment consider why anybody would care less what I say or be in the least bit interested but I need to get beyond that relative to delivering that for my business so that I can inspire my business to deliver that legacy. Interesting listening to Chris because humility is something we talk about a lot in elite sport and the importance of humility. And I think we've be able, been able to create that culture in our people from top to bottom now. We don't let egos get in the way and we spend a lot of time if we see something or if someone comes out to the block looking like they're trying to not quite be the right behaviours that we would like. And we had a couple at the World Championships this year. I've never seen myself as an inspirational person. I've just seen myself doing something that I love. I'm not great on self-promotion, but I just like my results to speak for themselves. Generally, I've been fortunate enough that people have liked what I've done and, and wanted it somewhere else. I did have some egos, certainly in the rugby days that I had to deal with around certain people. And that was a challenge for me personally. But if there was a word to get back to the original question, what am I going to leave behind? We talked a little bit as a leadership team around our dynasty. What does the Spice dynasty look like for the future? That's the word that we were playing around with. And I kind of sat there and thought, oh, I don't know that I kind of like that. It's a bit too bullish and a bit too puffing your chest out. But in the end, with my psych yesterday, we kind of agreed that that was actually a good thing mm. and that creating a dynasty of high performance for this, whatever this window of period looks like, whether it's 10 years or 15 years, if someone was able to say about me, well, what it's created such a dynasty at British Swimming, um, to me that would probably mean I did a decent job. Do you feel like there's a stretch within that that you're going to have to do or any adjustment in terms of your style in order to get there? Yeah, I think so because principally because of the environment now has changed because I've got para and diving and swimming I'm already adjusting how I would act with the swimming people with the diving people and the para because they're not at the same place it's a lot of work to do and the para equation is different because how hard do you push para athletes and that's becoming a real question mark not just for our sport but for sport in general because I don't feel the need to drive para athletes to the same extent simply because I find them inspirational anyway 
I went to the para camp in Lanzarote because I couldn't get to the world championships. I was just getting really emotional around some of their journeys to get there. This young chap that's had a car accident and he's 32. He's never swum in his life competitively much before. And he's now taught himself all these swimming skills. And because he's so determined to walk again, he's put that same level of determination into his swimming. And now he's on the borderline of making the national team. I just couldn't think that that's possible in able-bodied swimming in three years. It's not possible. So to me, it's how do I harness that in the para program? Because they're the things that I think will inspire each other for them, but also will be inspirational to the able-bodied people. I'll have to start reinventing some of that stuff, no question, because we can't just sit back and hence the best is yet to come challenge Mm. to the program is we're not there yet. It's going to be further on in the distance and we've got to keep that whole philosophy moving. And that comes with its challenges. As everyone knows, the same in business, you get to a certain level, it's the small increments that take the most effort. Fortunately, I've got an incredibly talented bunch of people. And what's happened with the restructure that we've just done is we've absolutely refreshed that group now. It's been a bit messy and a bit bitty, and we've got to the summer finally, and we've performed pretty well. So now it's about ramping that up into in the next two years now that we've got the, the people on the bus. So really looking forward to it. Thank you both so much for just the, the vulnerability, the openness that you've really shared with us today. One final thing that we always like to ask on this podcast is, as a result of the conversation that you've had today, what have you learned, re-remembered, reflected on that perhaps you wouldn't have without this conversation? Chris Pitt, what's the thing that you've kind of reflected upon or, or learned as a result of this podcast? listening to Chris, and I would normally think about being the best that you can be, but thinking beyond that. The one thing that really come back to values as well that sparks me up is when I see someone in my organization who is having a life and a career and the money to power their family in a way that they never thought they could. In my world, that's usually through education and development. And there's someone who works very closely with me who's a lady in her 40s, um, had a child relatively young, has now gone back to university, has just done or is doing an MSc at Cranfield, has now got a much bigger job, who's having a completely different life to the life that she thought she could have had. You know, and we employ 2,000 people in working class parts of Glasgow and of Leeds, whose life chances are a function of the environment in which they grew. A real emotive driver for me is, can we get those people to have completely different lives relative to raising their expectations of what they could be and what they can do and thinking about that beyond your being the best person you are I think is a really fascinating thought for me to take away. Chris Spice what about you? The phrase that resonated me most was rational trust I thought wow that really related to our program and our people as well because I'd want to explore that whole idea a bit more around rational trust and around foundations and the things that people build on I think that's something in our program that people talk about trust and purpose and but I'm not quite sure they get it that's the big takeaway for me Thank you so much. Delighted that you guys have both taken something away uh, from this. There was a huge amount uh, to unpack within this. I think we're going to be listening to it several times. Thank you both so much. And and thank you to those listening back home. I'm sure you two got a huge amount from it.